Amen, congregation. You may be seated. You got your Bibles with you this morning? I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, we're going to begin in verse 29. We're going to work our way into chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We've got a lot of verses to cover this morning. We want to give you kind of a 30,000-foot view of these verses as we walk through them. Matthew, you'll remember Matthew is a Jewish writer writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and he's writing to demonstrate to them that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. And as we're going to see next week, Peter, you'll remember, is going to make the great confession. In fact, uh, most believe that, that kind of the crescendo of the book, the, uh, the middle part, the climax of the book is Matthew 16, where Peter will make that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and then Jesus, you'll remember, will say to him, uh, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't come up with this here on your own, Peter. God revealed it to you. And that is a good reminder as we gather this morning that it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how good the, the preacher, the speaker may be or how bad he may be. Apart from divine illumination, none of us are going to get anything. We need God to show up. Amen. We need God to speak to us. In fact, we're going to see in this text this morning, there's two groups of people that are coming. There's one group of people, and uh, for all physical intents and purposes, they have no right to claim the promises of God. They, they're outside the people of God, and yet they're going to come to Christ understanding that he's the, the Savior. They're going to understand he's their only hope. They're going to recognize we got no hope apart from this man, and he's going to extend to them grace and compassion. There's another group of people, they're going to come in arrogance, pride, self-righteousness, and they're not going to know his compassion. They will only experience rejection. So with that in mind, let's pray together, and then we'll work our way through this text. Fathers, we pause this morning before looking into your word. We recognize that we need to hear your voice. We need divine illumination this morning. That this is no ordinary book. This is the living word of God. And we're asking you, God, to speak to us afresh and anew through your word today. So God, give us eyes to see. Open our ears that we might hear and receive from you. And you might draw us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look in verses 29 through 31, we're going to see right here a picture of compassion towards the humble. Continued on last week, the Canaanite woman, a humble woman coming outside the people of God, but Christ will demonstrate compassion towards her. And again, we see this continued right here with this group of people. And I also think in these, these verses right here, we see a beautiful picture of the church. So, so look with me at verses 29 through 31. It says, departing from there, Jesus went all, along by the Sea of Galilee and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is a beautiful picture. Jesus is, is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he positions himself at a high place on a mountain near the sea. 
And, and words out now. They've, they've heard about Christ. They've heard about what he's able to do. And they're bringing all these people to him. They're coming to Christ. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of John 12, 32, when Jesus said, if I'm lifted up from the earth, all men will be drawn to me. Right here, Christ is lifted up. Christ is exalted. And all these people are coming to him. And it's a good reminder. What is our purpose as a church? Our purpose is to exalt who? We exalt Jesus. That we don't exalt buildings or programs. We don't exalt pastors or people. We exalt one person and his name is Jesus. Why? Because that's who the world needs. So right here, Christ is exalted. All these people are coming to him. And who are these people that are coming? Well, these are some messed up folks. These are outcasts. These are the unloved and the unlovely. This, this mountain, this, this place on top of the mountains all of a sudden becomes some kind of makeshift ER room as all these people with all these dilemmas and problems are coming to Jesus. But isn't that a beautiful picture of the church also? That we might not have been physically handicapped, but all of us, spiritually speaking, were lame. We weren't walking with the Lord. We were spiritually blind. We couldn't see our own sin. We couldn't see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. We were spiritually deaf and mute. We couldn't hear God's voice in his word. We could see other people who valued the word and loved the world, word, but, but, but God wasn't speaking to us, and we, wasn't, we weren't speaking to him. But what happened? We, we, we got to a place, somehow, someway, where God shown the light of his gospel in our heart. We began to understand we need Jesus. We ran to him and we were spiritually healed. Amen. Isn't that a picture of the church? The church is simply a hospital full of helpless, hurting people who met up with the great physician, King Jesus, and he changed our life forever. That's these folks. And it's important to note that in these miracles that Jesus is performing here, these, these miracles, they're not unusual and they're not unique. And I want to be careful about how I say that because I'm not saying they're not divine and they're not amazing miracles. But what I'm saying is these are all miracles that Jesus had performed before. I mean, he healed the lame, the blind, the mute. He had fed, as we saw in chapter 14, he fed 5,000. He's going to feed 4,000. He'd done all these things before. But what makes these miracles unique and unusual is not the miracle in and of itself. It's the people to whom he was performing them. He's doing these things for the Gentiles. Imagine the disciples, most of whom were probably married, going home to their their wives and saying, honey, you're not going to believe what Jesus did today. What did he do? Well, he healed the lame, the mute, the blind, fed 4,000. Wife would probably say, well, he's done those things before. What's so big about that? No, 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 no. You don't get it. He did these things for the Gentiles. He did what? And what is Jesus teaching his guys? He's teaching them right here that God loves everyone. He's giving them a preview of what ministry is going to look like after he's gone. He's giving them a preview of what the church will be like. That in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. As he's going to tell them at the end of Matthew, you're going to be sent to all the nations. He's going to tell them in Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the remotest parts of the world. You're going to be sent out to the outcasts and the unloved. You'll be sent to no one, those that no one else wants and that no one else values. And that has been the history of Christianity. Throughout history, it's been Christians who have developed hospitals and cared for the sick and the handicapped and the outcasts. It was Christians who developed the first orphanages to care for the parentless child 
It was Christians that reached out to leper colonies. As I was reading and studying this week, I read about Brother Damien. They, they, in 1886, the, the Hawaiian Islands, they had these lepers. They didn't know what to do with them. They were afraid of them. They just put them on boats, and they put them on an isolated island. They kicked them off the boat. They didn't even drop them off at the shore. They just kicked them off and forced them to swim. And there they were left to die. They lived in caves. They had nothing. And Brother Damien said, those people need the gospel as much as any of us. And he boarded a ship and he jumped off with the rest of those lepers and he went to live among them to share the gospel with them. And guess what? He ended up contracting leprosy and dying on that island. And he praised God. He wrote back to his brother and I praise God that he would allow me to die amongst those whom God loves and he called me to save. It's the Moravian missionaries. The Moravian, these two men that that learned of this island where these slaves were being kept and the owner said, they're never going to hear about the gospel. We're going to cut them off from any evangelistic message. And these two men decided the only way we're going to reach those guys with the gospel is if we become slaves ourselves. And so they sold themselves into slavery and they took the proceeds of that and they used it to buy passage to the island. And there they went and they became a slave so that they might win slaves to faith in Christ and tell them that God made you in his image and God loves you and he desires to know you. The history of Christianity is filled with stories of men and women. Story after story, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, Lottie Moon, all these individuals who went to remote places, faraway places, places where no one else would go and minister to reach people that no one really cared about. And where did we get that? It started with Christ. It's the heart of God. And it begins right here, folks. This is a picture of the wideness of God's mercy that there's no one too far gone, no sinner he cannot forgive, no chain of sin he cannot break. And by the way, if you just so happen to be here today, you're listening online and you know that you're spiritually broken. You feel like a spiritual leper. You feel like an outcast that no one loves. Can I tell you, you've come to the right place because such were we prior to faith in Christ. And boy, do we have a savior for you. Because he loves the outcast. He loves the unlovely. He's the great physician. He's the healer of our hearts. He's the satisfier of our souls. And he says to all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And what's the world's response? Jesus is performing these miracles. Verse 31, the crowd marveled. Listen, when the church is doing what the church is called to do, when when lives are being changed, when when marriages are being restored, when, when the chains of sin are being broken, the world sits back and it just stands in awe of it. Why? Because the world wants all those things too. They just don't know how to produce it. And what we're able to say is there is one who's come and frees us from the bondage of sin and sets the captives free and his name is Christ. And then in verse 32, this is amazing. Who do they glorify? The God of Israel. Gentiles. Now, I'd say most of us aren't tracing our lineage back to Abraham and and Isaac. But we're a group of people gathered in this room, and we worship who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, this is a picture of the church that... That when God shows up and he demonstrates his power, who gets the glory? God alone. This is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. That out there in the world, a lot of people get glory, don't they? When teams do well, coaches get glory. Quarterbacks get glory. 
point guards get glory. CEOs of businesses get glory. But in the church, there's only one who gets glory, and his name is Jesus. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the church right here? In these, these few verses right here, 29 through 31, you see Christ exalted. You see lives being changed. You see the world marveling, and you see the church worshiping. Oh, that's a beautiful picture right there. Then his compassion continues in verses 32 through 39. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've, they've remained with me now three days and they got nothing to eat. And I don't, I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. And this is incredible. You've got a group of people who are so focused on Jesus, so enamored with Christ that they've forgotten all about food. You ever been caught up in some experience, whatever it might be in your life, that you enjoy doing, and you're so caught up in doing that thing and enjoying that moment that you could care less about anything else? These people, for three days, all they want is Jesus to the extent that they've forgotten about everything else. Don't we sing that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Well, these are some folks that the things of the earth just grew dim in light of Jesus. And they're coming to him and they're being healed. But the crowds are getting huge. And Jesus knows we, we got an issue here. We, we, gotta, we can't send these people away. In fact, he says, I, I'm afraid they might faint. He, he's saying, I'm afraid they might die. We got to do something here. And it's interesting because the disciples, they're going to see this as a problem, and Jesus is going to see it as an opportunity. Do you know what I found? Just a side note here, that truly successful people, listen, we all got trials. We all have difficulties in our life. The difference between those who stand up underneath the trial and those who get overwhelmed by the trial, are the diff- it's the ability to see the problem as an opportunity and not just an obstacle. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're going to do something right here. We're not going to send them away. And it prompts a question from the disciples. They say that the disciples said to him, where, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And if you're like me, you're looking at this and saying, haven't the disciples learned this lesson already? I mean, it sound kind of familiar. Just a chapter ago, that sounds like a very similar question. Haven't they learned this before? But then let me ask you a question. Have you ever learned a lesson that God taught you and then just a few short months later God had to teach you that lesson again? You ever been in a situation where you found yourself in a spot and you said, well, God, you left me out here to die. There's no way we can't do this. It's all going to crumble down. There's no way we can do this. And all of a sudden God shows up. You see an incredible provision of God. You say, praise Jesus. He's a God of faithfulness and provision. And then three short months down the road you get yourself in another spot. You know what you say? Oh, God, you left us out here to die. We can't do this. It's all over. And then God has to reteach us that I'm faithful. This is a lesson that Jesus just keeps pounding into the disciples that you do what I called you to do and you focus on me and I will meet your needs. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And so in verse 34 Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? They said to him, seven and a few small fish. <laughs> don't, don't you think that the disciples at this moment are saying, oh, now here we go again. Last time we did this, we were picking up bread for days. 
In verse 35, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. So it's very similar to the, to the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw in chapter 14 with some differences. There we had five loaves and two fish. Here we have seven loaves and a few fish. Chapter 14, they had 12 baskets left over. Here we see seven baskets left over. So there's differences here. But the biggest difference between chapter 14 and chapter 15 is that in chapter 14, we were feeding the Jewish people, primarily a Jewish audience. And here in chapter 15, we're feeding primarily a Gentile audience. And what is God saying to his guys? I love the Jews and I also love Gentiles. And do you know who I really love? I love anybody who will come to me in a recognition that they need help. And to those people who will humble themselves before me and come to me, I don't ever cast those people away. I demonstrate my compassion and I demonstrate my mercy. But then as we get into chapter 6, we see a different group. They're not going to come in desperation. They're not going to come in humility. They're going to come in arrogance. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there'll be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but can't discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except for the sign of Jonah. And he left them, and he went away. So here you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together against Jesus. It's really the first time we're going to see the, the, the Sadducees. They're going to pop up more as we get towards the crucifixion. But what's interesting is the Pharisees and Sadducees were on completely opposite ends of the theological spectrum. They didn't agree on anything. In fact, they were enemies. And yet they'll come together. You ever heard the saying, the enemy of, the, of my enemy is my friend? Well, they're going to come together because they have a common disdain for Christ. They, they, they don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't like Jesus. And so they come to him, and they're not really seeking truth. They're seeking to test Jesus. In fact, that's what Matthew tells us. They're testing Jesus. The idea is we're going to ask for a celestial sign, a heavenly sign. And if he doesn't perform it, we're going to say, well, look, he doesn't have the power to do what he, what he said he could do, so he's not the Messiah. And then if he performs some celestial sign, they're probably going to say, well, uh, look, he's a sorcerer, and he performs this power by Beelzebul, which is what they had said previously. And Jesus is not going to play their game. As he tells them, you got no trouble reading the sky to determine the weather, but you can't read the signs that are right there in front of you that tell you that I am the Messiah. They'd seen all these. They'd seen enough signs. They had read their Old Testament. They knew that everything pointed them to Christ as the Messiah. He says, there's only going to be one sign that will be left to give you. That will be the sign of Jonah, meaning the resurrection. That's all you're going to get, but I'm not going to play your games. You see, Jesus knows the difference between those who are sincerely seeking the truth and those who are simply disguising their questions as a means of attack. Any of y'all ever experienced that? Somebody who, who brings question to you and you know they're not really asking questions. They're disguising their questions as a means of attack. And uh, it's what I would call the smart aleck approach. They don't really want the truth. They want to attack you or they're looking to back up what they what they already believe. And Jesus is not going to play their games. He leaves them. There's a picture of rejection here. But here's the important lesson. 
Here's the lesson. I can't drive this home enough. Chapter 15, you see a Canaanite woman, you see handicapped Gentiles, desperate, dependent people coming to Jesus as their only means of salvation, their only hope. And Jesus gives to them grace and mercy, and they experience his compassion. They're going to see a powerful expression of his, of his grace in their life. But then on the other hand, you've got these religious leaders, these arrogant, prideful, self-righteous men who will come not in sincerity. They're coming not to learn. They're coming to attack. And all they will experience is Jesus' rejection. They're not going to know compassion. They're going to know rejection. And here's the point. Here, here's the point. If you have come to Lenexa Baptist Church because you're looking for reasons not to believe in Jesus, you probably already found several, and you may find several more before you leave this morning. But if you're a genuine seeker, if you're coming this morning with a, with a heart of desperation and humility, you're going to have a completely different experience. But listen, Jesus doesn't play games. He knows your heart. He's not in the business of performing miracles to convince a group of people who have no desire to believe whatsoever. But if you're genuine, if you're sincere. See, as we've been seeing throughout the book of Matthew, it's all about the heart. In the parable of soils, it's all about the soil of your heart. How do we come to Jesus? You remember the Beatitudes? In the Beatitudes, uh, and Jesus said what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that they're spiritually broke, that they got, <laughs> they're spiritually broke. They know they've got no leg to stand on. Blessed are those who mourn, who have grieved over their sin and know the desperation of their situation. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That there's a way to come to God. You don't come in arrogance. You come in humility. And this is not to say that you don't sometimes bring questions. Jesus is, will, will abide in intellectual integrity. If you've got questions, he's not afraid of that. But he will not abide intellectual arrogance. And so we see these two groups of people, one experiencing compassion, one experiencing rejection. And then we see a picture of a little bit of a confusion on the part of the disciples. Look at verses 6 through 12. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss this amongst themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss amongst yourself that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you picked up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is, is challenging his disciples. He's warning them about a major spiritual pitfall in their life. And all they're concerned about is their bellies. <laughs> He's trying to teach them an important spiritual lesson. And all they're worried about is where they're going to eat lunch. Sometimes I identify on Sunday morning. Just kidding. But I will say this. If there was one part of this sermon that really hit home with me, it was this part. Because we look at the disciples and we say, can't y'all get it? But you know what? I think in my own life how many times I get so focused on the earthly that I miss the eternal. 
that spiritually speaking, I'm so focused on my belly and where I'm going to eat lunch that I miss out on the lessons that God wants to teach me. Just getting real practical in my own life. How, 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 how much time did I spend this week in God's word really seeking truth? And how much time did I just waste on a bunch of earthly things that make no eternal difference? How much time did I spend focusing on things that will never matter in the grand scheme of things? And how much time did I spend trying to tell somebody about the only means of hope, which is Jesus Christ? We're in the same place. And he says to him, do you guys not remember? Have you ever heard Jesus say that in your life? Do you not remember? They're worried about bread. He says, just a few moments ago, you were drowning in bread. (laughs) Now you're worried about bread. He's saying, guys, lift up your eyes. You remember John chapter 4? John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. Prior to that, he sends the disciples to go get something to eat. The disciples come back. He's got these crowd. Jesus got this crowd of people around him. He's telling them about the gospel. He's telling them about who he is. And the disciples come back, and they're hungry, and they brought some food. And they say, Rabbi, eat. Why are they saying that? Because they're hungry. Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says to him, you remember what he says? He says, I got food you don't know about. And they're wondering, did somebody grab him a burger? Did he have a sandwich in his pocket we didn't know about? What's going on here? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he tells him, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. He says, guys, you're missing all that I want to do because you're too focused on food. It's called misplaced priorities. Do we ever deal with that? Worried about things that don't matter and missing all that God wants to do. So he's trying to get their attention And he tells them, I'm not talking about the leaven of bread. I'm talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, here's the question. What was the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Let me just give you a few things as we wrap up. Number one, the leaven of of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, what they did is, you remember we've talked about this. They made their own man-made traditions. They developed a whole lot of traditions around the law. They had good intentions. It started out with great intentions. We're just going to add a little rules here and there, try to make sure everybody stays according to the law. But then they got to a place where they were so focused on the rules that they elevated the rules and the traditions above the law, above the word of God. It's called legalism. It's when we get to a place where we take things that go beyond Scripture and we use them as a litmus test for spirituality and salvation. And that's what they had gotten to the point of. And Jesus says, beware of adding to the law things that aren't there. Because what happens? You remember, it's leaven. Leaven is something that you just put a little bit in and then what happens as you work it in? It, it just overcomes the dough. And Jesus is saying this, this legalism thing, it starts out really small, but eventually what happens, what happens is it takes over and you miss what? You miss Jesus. Because if you play it out far, far enough, who becomes the Savior? It's not Jesus, it's you. Because your salvation comes all about what you do and your religious activity and your disciplines and all the little man-made rules that you've developed. And then he tells them about the, the leaven of the Sadducees. Well, here's what the Sadducees were guilty of. They just started taking out parts of the word of God they didn't like. They just believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't like the idea of judgment. Boy, that sounds bad. Well, we'll just take it out. No more heaven, no more hell, no more resurrection. We don't really like this angel deal. It scares us. We'll just get rid of the angel part. They just started taking parts of the Bible out they didn't like or didn't fit their lifestyle. Is that a danger today? All the time. People just say, well, you know, I don't really like that. It doesn't set well with me. It doesn't fit with my lifestyle. So I just take that portion. They may have good intentions. We contextualize that. That was just part of that culture. We take that piece out. But listen, you know what Jesus is saying? It's leaven. You start taking a little bit out, slippery slope, and it 
begins to permeate everything. And you know what happens at the end of the day? You miss Jesus. Both of these two people, the greater leaven that was the danger, was that neither one of these two groups believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And that's the great danger of heading down either two of these paths, is that you get to a place where you miss Jesus. That's the danger, and he's warning his guys, don't go down those roads, because you'll miss me. So in this text, do you see this? Do you see the picture? He's saying, guys, don't go down a road where you become king, where you become the law, and you just start picking and choosing. We as God's people, we don't just come to salvation by humility, knowing who we are. We don't just be desperate for him at the moment of salvation. That's our lives. He's saying, you guys, there's two groups of people. that He's showing them. Couldn't be any clearer. There's a group of people out here who remain humble. They know they're sinners and they're just desperately seeking Jesus and they're coming to him and Christ continues to demonstrate grace and mercy. They have a huge expression of God's power in their life and then you got this other group of people over here. They become self-righteous. They dominate their lives. They do whatever they want to do and they don't like Jesus telling them what they should do. They're arrogant. They're not coming to learn and Jesus says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And you know what? This morning, there's two groups of people here. You're really in one of two camps. You're, you're an individual here who says, you know what? When it comes to salvation, I got no leg to stand on. I know I can't get there by means of my religious activity. I know I'm not that good. I know that I am a sinner. And if that's you this morning, I'll say it again. Boy, do we have a Savior for you. Because he came to do what you couldn't and to live the life you should have but couldn't. And he died the death you should have. And he's provided you a salvation that comes by means of faith. But if you're here this morning and you say, well, you know what? I think I'm good enough on my own. I think I'm just going to take care of it by myself. Can I just be honest with you? We don't have anything for you. You're going to have to find something else to believe in. I don't know. But I'll tell you this morning, if you'll admit you're a sinner and you'll recognize Jesus as the only means of salvation and submit to his lordship, today you can know his grace, his mercy, and his compassion in a powerful way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace, your mercy, and your compassion that is extended to us. And God, I pray if there's anybody here, maybe they entered into this room thinking that they could get to you on their own. Maybe they were thinking that they were good enough in their own self-righteousness. Maybe they thought salvation was about joining a church. Maybe they thought salvation was about going to church. Maybe they thought salvation was about being a good person. I pray this morning that you would reveal to them, as it says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. None is righteous. No, not one. We can't save ourselves. Our only hope is Jesus. And God, I pray, if they've never trusted in you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. They'd run to you. It says here, they threw them at Jesus' feet, meaning they got there as quick as they could. They did whatever they could to get to Jesus. If somebody's here this morning, I, I pray that they would know that you're, you're just a prayer away. Your word says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If they'll cry out this morning, just in a humble prayer of desperation, you'll save them. You'll demonstrate grace and mercy. God, for all of us here, I pray that this would be the continual state of our life.
a desperate dependence upon you, a people who are just rejoicing in a God who would somehow be gracious and merciful to lost sinners like us. Thank you for your salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to pray with you. Maybe this morning you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe you just got something going on in your life you want prayer for. As pastors, we'll be here at the front. This is your time. Know this morning you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.